From 1967 to 1980, New York City in suburban New Jersey was the playground for a sexual serial killer who would bind, torture, strangle, and dismember his victims. He's been convicted of a number of murders, but many, including the killer himself, believe the number is closer to 100. This is the story of Richard Cottingham, the Torso Killer. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Podworth. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our Swahili-speaking uh, friends in <laughs> East Africa, Karibu, Karibu, Karibu. Well, welcome in Swahili. <laughs> yes. I love that. I've always wanted to say something in Swahili. And now you have. <laughs> now you have. Yeah. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. Mm-hmm. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Yes. And every Wednesday, just like when the podcast comes out, a YouTube comes out as well. Yeah, we've done, what, three episodes on YouTube now? So, something like that. Yeah, and we've already got 90 subscribers. We're getting close to that 100 mark, so we're going to milestone every time. So be sure <laughs> to turn are. your friends on to our YouTube Woo, channel. 100 listeners. Yeah. If you're the 100th listener, mm-hmm. be sure to write it in the comments so we know yeah. that it's you. We'll give you a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We don't have any prize or gifts or anything like no, that. No, no, no. Yet, yet, <laughs> yet, exactly. We've got lots of cool stuff coming this year because we're we're coming up on our first anniversary. Yeah. So that's very exciting. We're going to have some fun stuff to talk about yes, at that are. first anniversary. Well, we've got a birthday today too, Rob. Oh, that's right. We have to wish a happy birthday to Rachel Scudder all the way around the world from Kentucky to New Zealand. Yep. Your bestie told us it was your birthday. <laughs> so Rachel or Rach, as we understand you. Erica wanna... calls you Rach. Yeah. That's what she called you in her email. So. so this one's for you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Rachel or Rach. Happy birthday to you. Happy Yay. birthday, Rach. <laughs> so happy birthday, Rach. Yes. You've, got, you've got a good friend in Eric. Happy birthday. <laughs> well, I covered this case way back. Oh, yeah. But never in the great detail that I'm going to go into. Okay. And the reason we're revisiting this is because there are seven new admissions of guilt by Richard. Really? Seven women and girls that we didn't cover because he only admitted to all of these just this past December 2022. How long has he been in jail? Been in jail like 43, 44 years. Gee whiz. Yeah. He's just now coming up with the... Well, wow. well, he got caught. We're going to talk about that. Oh. That's It's pretty interesting. There's a little twist to it. Okay. So, yeah. And then, then the floodgates sort of opened. Gotcha. Before we get started, let me thank some sources. Murderpedia, Grunge.com, Newsday, The New York and Nassau County Edition, The Ridgewood Herald, Cinemaholic, 
The Hackensack Record, The New York Times, Rolling Stone Magazine, Project Cold Case, and The New York Daily News. Mm. Lots of sources, lots of information. Okay. Well, you ready? I am. All right, let's do it. Richard Francis Cottingham is born on November 25th, 1946 in the Bronx, New York. He's the oldest of three kids. In 1958, when Richard is 12, he moves with his family to Rivervale, New Jersey, and starts seventh grade at St. Andrews, which is a parochial school for boys and girls. Okay. He's really close to his mother. He's a little bit of a mama's boy. Hmm. He has trouble making friends. In 1960, he enters Pascack Valley High School. Richard's a big guy. He's stocky, Hmm. but he runs track in high school. He's kind of a loner, really only has a few close friends, like two other buddies. He thinks he's the leader. He thinks he's the alpha of the group. And interviews with some of his high school mates show that he was the guy who always thought that he knew more than anybody (laughs) else in the room. We all know that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Isn't that the saying? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he could even be a little bit belligerent, even to his teachers. Mm. And it's while he's in high school that he becomes obsessed with bondage pornography. In high school? In high school. And this was in the 60s? This is before the internet. This is before anything. Yeah. How did he even know about that stuff? It's got to be some deep, dark magazine or something somewhere yeah in 1964 he graduates but he doesn't head off to college right away he's a smart guy he's a really smart guy after high school richard goes to work for his dad at the metropolitan life insurance company as a computer operator for two years Hmm. and all the time he's doing this he's taking computer courses okay And I want to remind everybody that this is 1964 through 1966. We didn't even walk on the moon until 1969. Yeah, and the computer rooms were probably like the size of a building. They were like floors. They were absolutely, they were floors of computer systems. Yeah, that made up. and all this other stuff. It's true. And I even had in my notes that the guidance system that NASA used, you have more power in your iPhone right now than what they use. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, millions times more power than that computer. So Richard's no dummy by any means. He's just smart enough to think he's too smart. It's always the guys who think they're so smart, right? (laughs) Exactly. In 1966, he takes a job with Empire State Blue Cross Blue Shield, the insurance company, on 3rd Avenue in Midtown Manhattan as a computer operator. Hmm. And the department he works in, computers, this is exactly what you said. It takes up four floors of a complete New York City block. Yep. Yeah. 17 megs of memory. I always like to look at the uh, YouTube videos of like old uh, musical instruments, synthesizers, and computers. Yeah. Because it's just insane. It is. It's it's crazy. Richard chooses the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift. Hmm. He chooses this on purpose because it gives him free time in the mornings and late at night. Okay. I could say it, but you're probably thinking it. <laughs> Why would he look? Yeah. That's called foreshadowing. Uh-oh. Just shy of Richard's 21st birthday on October 28th, 1967, 29-year-old Nancy Vogel, whose nickname is Bubby, Nancy tells her friend and her husband that she's off to play bingo at St. Margaret's Church in Little Ferry. Hmm. 
Nancy goes out alone at 7.15 p.m. She's driving her own car, but she doesn't go to bingo. Instead, she goes to a shopping mall in Bergen County. Okay. Now, I'm sure many of us have done this. I'm going to go here, and then they just change their mind in the middle. Or maybe she didn't want her husband to know she was shopping. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Why Why would she think that? Yeah. Bergen County is in Hackensack, New Jersey. Now, Nancy's married to her husband, Henry. She has two children, Karen, age eight, and William, age six. And at the mall, she meets Richard. Mm -hmm. And Richard abducts Nancy, takes her to a field in Montvale, and strangles her. And the next morning at 9.45 a.m., Nancy's husband, Henry, reports her as a missing person. She didn't come home. Right. Nancy is found dead on Monday, October 30th at 3.20 p.m. in her own car by two little girls who see her in the floor of the back seat of her 1961 Rambler on Homestead Place in Ridgefield Park, just two miles from her home on Bertolotto Avenue in Little Ferry. She's covered with an army blanket. And neighbors say that the car's been parked there for a couple of days. She's nude and her hands are bound behind her back. Hmm. February 16th, 1968, Diane Kuzik was a 23-year-old dance teacher with a four-year-old daughter named Darlene. Diane and Darlene had been living with her parents after she'd become estranged from her husband two years ago. Diane Martin was born on November 26th, 1944 in Queens, New York. Her parents were Bernard and Rita Martin. She had two brothers, twins, Robert and James. And at seven o'clock that night, she phoned her parents from the Wakefield School of Dance to tell them that before she came home, she was going to the mall. She drove her 1961 white Plymouth Valiant. I knew a friend in high school who drove a Plymouth Valiant. We (laughs) called it the big bad Plymouth Valiant. Yep. But she drives her Plymouth Valiant to the Green Acres Shopping Center in New Hyde Park, Long Island. She was there to purchase a pair of pink shoes. And when she didn't come home, her mom and dad drove to the mall parking lot to look for her car, which makes sense. She didn't come home. They're like, we know where she was going. She told us we're just going to go drive around and look for her car. Yeah, Any parent would do that. And her car is found just behind a restaurant by her mother and her father at 12.20 a.m. Diane's face was beaten badly with bruises on both eyes, lips, and the bridge of her nose. Diane had been sexually assaulted. The leotard and tights she still wore from teaching dance class had been torn off of her body. There were ligature marks on her wrists. Two-inch wide adhesive tape was wound around her mouth and neck. Wow. She'd been suffocated. Wow. Her jewelry and her purse were all still at the crime scene. She had not been robbed. And she was a single mom who wasn't dating. And they believe that she was approached at her car by someone who was posing as mall security or police. Mm, Okay. Now, police asked for anyone who might have seen Diane or even her car after she left the dance studio to call PI-61111. PI-611. This was before all number calling in the United States. I I read this in the newspaper. And I even saw that there was a group called the Anti-Digit Dialing League who opposed the all number calling across the United States. Well, if you're going to protest something, I guess that's a big one to protest. Yeah. Yeah. PI was actually the Pilgrim area of Long Island. You know, do you remember your phone number as a kid? Because I remember mine. 
Uh, my parents still have the same phone number I had as a kid. <laughs> really? Yeah. And the other day, my dad even said, do you think I should get rid of this landline? I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. No. I still remember mine. It, it ended in 6798. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was back in the day when we actually memorized numbers yeah. because we didn't have speed dial. And now I don't know anybody's number yeah. because yeah. you're just a name actually, and a face on my phone. I was really little, I remember us having a party line. Oh, that's that's yeah. like a whole other subject. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving ahead. We, but we digress. Yes. <laughs> but police are very, very stumped by this murder. But the one thing that they do is they keep all of the clothes that Diane was wearing that mm. night. And? That's called foreshadowing. There you go. July 17th, 1968, Jacqueline Harp, Jackie, age 13 of Midland Park, is walking home for band practice. It's 7 p.m. She's a flag bearer with the color guard of the all-girl Imperial Knights Drum and Bugle Corps. Wow, what a title. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie has brown hair and blue eyes. She's wearing a black and red checked blouse with little white shorts. Jackie was going to be an eighth grader at Midland Park Junior High. She was the youngest of five daughters. Her parents are Mr. and Mrs. Lee Roy Harp. Okay. And on that Wednesday, she's walking home from practice, and she's last seen by two other kids all alone on Goodwin Avenue at about 10 minutes until 10 p.m. Okay. And this is when a strange man, Richard, tried to lure her into his car. Mm. Jackie refuses. Richard persists, driving ahead of her, pulling over and walking back to her. Mm. But Jackie runs and Richard gets out of the car and runs after her. He catches her and drags her into a bunch of bushes where he knows kids go to smoke weed and make out. Jackie's mother reported her missing at one in the morning Thursday when she never came home. At 6.45 a.m., Lionel Cordier Jr., who lives on Morrow Road, called police and said that his father had found a dead girl lying near the path in the wooded area directly behind their home as he was out walking his dog. When I read things like that, I just think, okay, we walk our dog every single day. Can you just imagine you're just out minding your own business walking your dog and you find a dead body? Yeah. Yeah. This particular area is part of the F.G. Monty Burt Company. It's a textile mill, which is located about 100 feet from the spot where her body is found. They rope off the area and the local police, they start looking for clues. Jackie was found lying on her back. She was fully clothed and she had blood on her stomach and a bruise on her forehead. Her glasses were found right near her. She'd been strangled. Richard had used her flag sling as a ligature. Yeah. Jackie was a terrific kid. Had an, she was an active member in her Sunday school at the Pascack Valley Baptist Church, where her family attended. Police deny that she was sexually molested. The Bergen County prosecutor, Guy Khaleesi, told the newspapers that it was a crime of, quote, sexual gratification. Mm. Now, I don't know if they left out that they think that it was a sexual crime, that she had been sexually abused. Because, you know, this is this is the early 70s, late 60s, and, right. and she's only 13. Sure. But he is a sexual serial killer. Right. Authorities think that it's definitely somebody local because only a local would know the area where Jackie's body was dumped, mm. a place where all the kids went to make out and smoke weed. Right. 
Irene Blaze is an 18-year-old who dropped out of Bogota High School in 1967, but was taking classes to get her high school equivalency. She was born on January 29, 1951 in Pennsylvania and was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Blaze. She had three siblings, Ursula, love that name, (laughs) Elizabeth, and Michael. She worked at several area stores and factories since leaving high school. And she and her family had only lived on Elm Street in Bogota for a couple of weeks. On April 7th, 1969, at 7.45 that night, she tells her mom, Rose, that she's meeting a friend at the mall. Richard sees Irene at the mall where she's shopping in Hackensack, New Jersey. Richard persuades her to go and have a drink with him. They take a bus to another location to have that drink. And when they're through, Richard says he'll take Irene back to the bus station. The next day, Irene was found by two young boys face down and strangled to death with a wire or cord. She was lying in four feet of water Uh, in the Saddle River. Wow. Again, the lab says that she had not been sexually assaulted. They pick up one of her former boyfriends and question him for about five hours, this poor guy. And the police are only finding dead ends. And that's what happens over and over again. Dead ends, dead ends. Mm. July 14th, 1969, 8 p.m. Denise Falaska, 15 years old, left her residence on Bergen Line Avenue in Kloster, New Jersey. Denise was last seen by family members on her way to meet with friends in Westwood, New Jersey. Denise's parents are Jacob and Jacqueline. She also has four sisters, Cheryl, Diane, Karen, and Patricia. Denise apparently lies to her parents and tells them she's spending the night over at a friend's house. She will never return. Mm -hmm. Witnesses reported seeing Denise walking on Old Hook Road in Emerson towards Westwood at about 9 p.m. that night. She was wearing blue bell-bottom jeans. Yeah. I'm pausing for Rob. (laughs) Now you're talking my language. (laughs) She was wearing blue bell-bottom jeans, a dark-colored shirt, and she was carrying a brown leather drawstring purse. Mm. Richard pulls up his car alongside her and asks if she needs a ride, and Denise accepts. Denise is only 5'3 and about 100 pounds. She's somebody who's easily overpowered by Richard, and in fact, all of the women that he chooses are small, are petite. Mm. And most of them weigh around 100 pounds or are 5'5 five, five or smaller. So he's got a type and plus the fact that he can just overpower He them. can easily overpower yeah. them, right? Yeah. yeah. A young boy would find her body the next day in Saddlebrook by the side of Westminster Place in Saddlebrook, New Jersey. It's by a cemetery. She had been strangled to death by the chain of a heavy crucifix that she wore around her neck. Oh, my. Yeah. She had bloody fingerprints on her leg, but at the time, it was impossible to remove fingerprints from human skin. And after the autopsy, it's revealed that there were drugs in her system. But Denise did not do drugs. Mm. But Richard liked to use them to subdue his victims. The medical examiner believes she was murdered around 10 p.m., The police are under some pressure now. There have been 12 homicides in Bergen County in the last three years. And according to one of the Bergen County detectives, quote, a murder investigation is like a love affair. Things are all hot and heavy in the beginning, Hmm. but they can cool off overnight, end quote. That's a good description. Yeah. But the problem is they've got all these these bodies showing up and they, they have no 
They have no idea yeah. who the killer is. Sure. February 27th, 1970, Lorraine Montavlo McGraw is a 26-year-old girl with a long police record of drug abuse and prostitution charges. Many of these are under aliases. When she worked the streets as a sex worker, she used false names like Lorraine McGraw. She found her men, she found her johns at clubs and bars and adult establishments. That's according to the police. Lorraine lived on Long Island. And on the night of February 27th, Lorraine meets Richard. He rapes and strangles her, then dumps her body in the woods to the west of Tweed Boulevard in South Nyack, New York. Her body will be discovered on March 1st by a group of hitchhikers. Her murder will be unsolved for the next 48 years. Wow. Yeah. So many. So, but this one, they did report her being raped. Well, she was a known sex worker. Right. So, yes. Yeah. Which, because your statement before when you were saying because they, the girls were so young that that's why you think they didn't. Yeah. Well, for sure. And he does like to pick up sex workers. Sure. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Okay. But the young girls, he was a sexual serial killer. Right. So, I could see where in 1969 the newspaper right. would leave that out. Exactly. I really can. Yeah. On May 3rd, 1970, Richard marries his wife, Janet, at Our Lady of Lord's Church in Queens. Who is this lady? Janet. Wow. Poor Janet. They moved to the apartments called Ledgewood Terrace in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Okay. The thing about Richard is he has a really small area where he likes to work and pick women up. And it's very close to where he lives. Wow. Yeah. Wednesday, May 10th, 1972, Mary Elizabeth Hines is a 21-year-old nanny from Mineola, New York, Long Island. She was born on January 5th, 1971 in New York and grew up in Mineola. Mary Beth loved the king of rock, Elvis Presley. Little E. And she had her whole room decorated with his posters, which I thought was so sweet. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) While attending school growing up, she was a Girl Scout and she loved arts and crafts. Me too. She always had her hair done and loved an updo. Also, me too. (laughs) (laughs) She was diagnosed when she was younger with epilepsy and suffered from grand mal seizures, which caused a loss of consciousness and muscle contractions. And because she had these seizures daily, she really couldn't be alone. She lived with her parents. Mm. She has six siblings, and after she graduates from high school, she takes a job as a live-in nanny for a family. She lived with them during the week and came home to her parents' house on the weekend. She always took the bus because she couldn't have a driver's license in case she should ever have a seizure. Makes sense. Yeah. On May 5th, 1972, Mary Beth had a date. She was attending the local epilepsy dance. She was supposed to be home to get ready to go to that Friday night dance to get her up to going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. yeah, she never made it there after leaving her job. Yeah. Her date showed up and he even waited for her. But Mary Beth did not come home mm. when she was last seen. The five foot four inch girl was wearing a hot pants jumper suit, <laughs> which was huge then. Gotta love that. <laughs> The next morning, Mary Beth's mother called the Nassau County Police Department, and she's told that because Mary Beth is 21, there's just not much they can do. Mm. She's an adult. She hasn't been missing for longer than 24 hours, which has got to be really frustrating for their parents because they're like, she's an epileptic. She can't be alone. 
and we can't find her. And you know your routine of your child and, you know, something out of the ordinary. Yeah, you recognize exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The following Wednesday, May 10th, Mary Beth's body is found around 1045 a.m. by a couple of fishermen. She was face down in a shallow stream in the two-acre wood near Peninsula Boulevard of Rockville Center. She'd been strangled and then thrown from the Rockville Center Bridge into the stream. Mm. In 1972, that area was used as like a lover's lane. And it's wooded on both sides of this stream. So it would have been very easy for no one to see her at all. Sure. Police have no leads or suspects, and they won't for the next 48 years. Wow. July 17th, 1972, 23-year-old Laverne Moy of St. Albans, Queens, she's separated from her husband, John. She's living in St. Albans with her grandmother, Beulah Johnson. Beulah. She's a single mom of two kids, John, age five, and Monique, age four. She worked at the Nassau County Hospital as a ward clerk. She is last seen on that Monday, July 17th. Her partially nude body is found three days later on July 20th in the exact same spot as Mary Beth Hines just two months before in May. Wow. Laverne is under the bridge, dumped over the side near Hempstead Lake at Peninsula Boulevard. Laverne had been strangled. And the day that Laverne is found, a patrolman who was taking a dog census which is to get a head count of dogs and their licenses in the area just to make sure they've had their shots and that they're up to date. How would you like to be assigned to that? And to help return lost puppies? Yeah. Well, this patrolman, who I don't even think was a full officer at that time, he had a photo of Laverne, and he showed it to Ethel Tinsley. And Ethel sees this photograph and tells the patrol officer, that looks like my daughter, Laverne. Mm. Ethel and her husband will positively identify some of Laverne's jewelry first. When they tell them that, yes, it belonged to our daughter, they then positively ID the body. Hmm, That's sad. But they do it through Laverne's fingerprints, which were on file at the hospital. So if you work at the hospital, you had to be fingerprinted back then. They never make this family go identify this body because it's so horrible. Wow. This case will go no further For 48 years. Mm. Also during this time, Richard acquires himself a rap sheet. August 21st, 1972, he's charged and convicted of shoplifting at Stern's department store in Paramus. He's hanging out at the Paramus Mall. Uh, He's like a weird stalker dude who's married and hanging out at the mall, ogling women. Friday, July 20th, 1973, Sheila Hyman is a 33-year-old wife and mother of three boys, Todd, Bruce, and Randy. Sheila Clark Hyman is born on January 12th, 1940, and during the summer of 1973, her three boys are off at summer camp. Summer camp's the best. Sheila works with her husband, Leon, and her brother-in-law at the Gold Lee Book Company, which is a book distribution company in Brooklyn. Right. Leon and his brother own this family business. And Leon and Sheila were a loving couple living in a nice area of Long Island. And I read in the newspaper, the 1973 newspaper, (laughs) I read in the paper that it was a $75,000 home in 1973. That's a lot of money. It's about a half a million dollar home today. Yeah. Yeah, So very nice. Sure. They also had a, what was called a sleep-in maid. So a live-in. Wow. And she actually had Fridays off. 
And what did what did he do? He was a part owner in a book distribution center that was in Brooklyn. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I remember now. And they have this sleep-in maid, but she takes Fridays off. And during the summer months, Leon and Sheila take Fridays off. And on this particular Friday, Leon left the house around noon. He was off to buy presents for their three sons at camp. I mean, I don't know if he was going to send stuff to them at camp, but we used to do that when Luke was at camp, was at sleepaway camp, when they're there for weeks or eight weeks or a couple months. Yeah. You send stuff to them. Yeah. So he's off buying things for his three sons. But he said, you know, he was coming back soon because the two of them were going to an antique auction. Gotcha. When Leon returns to the house just after one o'clock, all the doors and windows in the home are locked and secured at 771 Mulberry Place in North Woodmere. He goes upstairs calling to Sheila and he finds her still in her pink nightgown lying on the floor of the master bathroom. The walls are spattered with blood. Mm. Sheila had been killed using blunt force trauma to the head and neck. She's been bludgeoned at least 15 times and was lying in a pool of her own blood. And according to the newspaper articles in 1973, there was no sexual assault. Hmm. The house is undisturbed. Sheila's still wearing her diamond engagement ring and her diamond wedding band and her purse, which had several hundred dollars inside. Hmm. All the cash is untouched and nothing in the home had been taken. And police assume that Sheila had let her killer into the house because none of the locks had been picked and there was no evidence of a forced entry. Okay. The police question Leon, of course, question the the husband forever for hours. They question him Friday night into Saturday morning. So he finds his dead wife. He's a grieving husband. And they take him down to the police station and they they question him all night long. They question him until Leon said, quote, I want my attorney. Over 250 people would attend Sheila's funeral service. Leon was cleared of the murder. Too many people saw him out that day while Sheila's murder was taking place. Captain William Metis of the Homicide Squad tells the media, quote, we have no suspects, leads or motive. They also have no murder weapon. Mm. So he's pretty good at not leaving a trail. But it's only 1973. Your time's coming, Richard. Yeah. They always make a mistake. Yes. Then on Tuesday, September 4th, 1973, just after Labor Day, Richard is charged with robbery, sodomy, and sexual assault. Oh, wow. But this case is dismissed. Why? I actually think he was with a sex worker or someone who didn't want to deal with authorities. And when she didn't prosecute, it just all went away. Gotcha. Yeah. Three months after Sheila's murder, it's October 15th, 1973, Richard and his wife, Janet, welcomed their very first child into the world, Blair. These poor, his poor family. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, how would you like to be born into that? Yeah, well, you don't get to pick your family, right? You can pick your nose, but not your family. (laughs) It's true. Then Richard was back on the streets raping and murdering again. December 27, 1973, Maria Emerita Rosando Neves is an 18-year-old girl who lives in Manhattan, a Jones Beach Parks commission worker who is pruning trees, finds Maria's body in a heavily weeded area near the Zacks Bay bus stop Mm. on Ocean Parkway. Maria lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and in the Bronx with some friends, and she also once listed her address as a hotel. She was a Puerto Rican immigrant who sent her mother money just before she died, $100, 
And in the letter, she asks about her uncle and says that she wants her uncle to write to her. And she asks her family for some family photographs. So I think she was missing home. Right. She had a boyfriend and she told her family they were thinking of moving to Columbia to live. Now, the guy who is pruning the trees finds Maria's body wrapped in a blanket with the ends tied together. Mm. And she'd been bound, her hands tied behind her knees. She was strangled and stuffed into lots of plastic bags and then wrapped in this gray blanket. Her neck had rope burns. She was very petite and was wearing a bra and jeans and had small cuts on her hands from maybe trying to ward off a knife attack. Defense wounds. Police issue a 13-state bulletin for the names of missing persons that fit her particular description. She will remain an anonymous murder until her fingerprints are matched to an arrest. And police believe she's murdered somewhere else and her body is dumped at the beach. She is found on December 27th, and her autopsy report showed that she was likely murdered on Christmas Day. Oh, man. Her homicide will be unsolved for the next 48 years. February 12th, 1974. Richard's now 27 years old, married. He has a daughter. He extends his police record again. He's charged with unlawful imprisonment and robbery. But again, the case is dismissed. Okay. Yeah. Again, I think it was probably a sex worker. And, you know, I have to wonder, too. I mean, what's his wife thinking during this whole thing? Well, here's the thing. At home, Richard seems like the perfect husband and father. His neighbors actually said that he was a very doting father and a nice guy. So, I mean, how did his neighbors and his wife, how did they know know about the crimes that he was accused of? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't in the Nassau County paper. Maybe it was in a different paper. Maybe they didn't list those things in the paper back then. But everybody just thought he was a good guy. Man. Yeah. August 9th, 1974, 17-year-old Marianne Pryor and her friend, 16-year-old Lorraine Kelly, who goes by Lori, are on their way to shop for bathing suits at the Paramus Mall, someplace that Richard yeah. always hangs His hangout. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Marianne was born 1957. Her parents are James and Wanda. When she leaves that day, she's wearing bell-bottom pants. There you go. With patches. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting fancy. And a halter top. Lori Kelly was born on August 18th, 1957. Her parents are both dead. Mm. Her father, Thomas, died in 1969 of cancer, and her mother, Frances, had died just two months prior in June, also of cancer. Oh, wow. Lori does have siblings, a sister, Marine, and two brothers, Thomas and John. When she leaves to go to the mall... She's wearing a white short sleeve shirt and brown corduroy pants with clogs, a beaded bracelet, and a necklace that is engraved Lorraine and Ricky. Ricky, in fact, is the one who dropped the two off at the bus stop. Ricky is Lori's boyfriend. Gotcha. It's thought that instead of waiting for the bus, the two of them decided to hitchhike because these two best friends were known hitchhikers. And it's 1974. Sure. Lori and Marianne were both known as good girls, sweet, but both very quiet and reserved. And who picks them up as they're hitchhiking? No. Richard Cottingham. Richard abducts them and takes them to a hotel. After torturing and raping them, he drowned them both in the hotel bathroom. And while this is happening, the police have said these two missing girls are runaways. So when I researched this case, this particular case... And put their names in, 
them going missing came up. But also, like the next day, there was an article in the newspaper that said these two girls are runaways. Mm. They, they're not runaways. Right. What they know is that they were both students at North Bergen High School and had left their homes at 4 p.m. on that Friday. Okay. Their beaten and sexually abused bodies are found the following Wednesday on August 14th at 8 o'clock in the morning by Ennis Perry, a tenant of the Ridgemont Garden Apartments. They were lying near the shrubs at the edge of the apartment parking lot, and they were by Ennis's parked car. And she tells police that when she got home the night before at 6 p.m., there were no bodies there. Mm. Lori and Marianne had been dead for about 36 to 48 hours. Their bodies were both naked and bound to one another at the wrists and the ankles while lying face down next to each other. Wow. They'd been beaten and raped. There were ligature marks on their necks. They had cigarette burns on their bodies. Mm. They questioned Lori's boyfriend because he's the last guy to see them alive, but eventually realize he's not the killer due to his alibi. This case will go cold for 48 years. Wow. By 1975, Richard moves his little family to a new three-bedroom home in Lodi, New Jersey, at 29 Vreeland Street. And the next month, March of 1975, his second child, Scott, is born. Okay. It's the mid-70s. Richard's been working at the same Blue Cross Blue Shield office for 10 years now. And you know how some people like to talk about their kids or their latest vacation sure. or their where they went to eat or whatever right. at the water cooler? That was before Facebook. Be, way before <laughs> Facebook, before you could take a picture of your food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Richard liked to talk about his sex life. Ooh. That was Richard's water cooler subject. Wow. Yeah. Gee whiz. He liked to talk about all the sex he was having with sex workers, what he called hookers. Mm. What you may or may not know about New York City is that in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a little bit of a cesspool. So if you know what Times Square looks like today, that is not the Times Square. (laughs) That's not what it looked like back then. No, My first trip was in 1981. I remember walking out into Times Square there and this guy came up to me and he listed off like 15 different types of drugs. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm just a kid from the country. I'm like, no, thank you. And I just walked off. <laughs> yeah. Well, being being the book nerd that I am, I, of course, wanted to go to the New York Public Library. This was 1982. That was the first time I went. And I got out of the cab and was standing by the lions, patience and mm-hmm. prudence. And a homeless man like stood up and peed right next to me. <laughs> and I was like, welcome to, welcome New, York. to New York. Yeah. yeah. But Times Square was full of sex workers and strip clubs, peep shows, pimps, drug dealers. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't ride the subway back then. You didn't walk in Central Park at night. Today, it's a completely different place. But back then, New York City could be a little bit scary. That was my very long way of saying there were plenty of sex workers on the streets in the late 70s. Eighth Avenue back then was called the Minnesota Strip because the Port Authority is right off Times Square on 8th Avenue. And that's where all the buses would drop off the girls coming from the Midwest to New York City. Mm. And there were actual pimps waiting there to pick them up and offer them jobs. They just wanted to come to the big city, and they're already being preyed upon. Richard liked bragging to his coworkers about sleeping with sex workers and about how he liked big-breasted women. Mm. He really liked bragging about going to S&M clubs, and he liked to gamble. And he loved to show off wads of cash to his coworkers, who are all male, by the way, not one woman right, in that office. Right, right. 
all while doing this, his co-workers thought that he was just a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And not just because he liked to talk about sex and S&M, but because Richard couldn't sit still. According to one of his co-workers, he always had to be moving all the time, mm. like shimmying his leg or rocking his body or whatever. Mm. Richard's a nervous little shit. Right. October 13th, 1976, Richard and Janet's third child is born, Jenny. And Janet will say that after the birth of Jenny, Richard would no longer have sex with her. Hmm. December 15th, 1977, 26-year-old Marianne Carr and her husband, Michael, live in an apartment at 462 Liberty Street in Little Ferry. These two were introduced by mutual friends and have only been married for 15 months, so newlyweds. Sure. He works for a successful real estate developer, and she works as an x-ray technician for Dr. Arthur Grossman. Okay. Mary Ann, or Marzi, is born on October 3rd, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. Her parents are Anthony and Francis. She has an older brother named Thomas. She leaves for work at 745 in the morning in her little white uniform. It's Thursday, December 15th. She's seen by neighbors speaking with a man in the parking lot of the apartment complex. She goes to work. She leaves that afternoon. She missed meeting up with her mother-in-law while her husband, Michael, is out of town on business. Okay. Marianne, or Marzi, is abducted by Richard. Mm. He takes her to the Hasbrook Heights Quality Inn in New Jersey. And when he gets her inside the hotel room, he restrains her and then he tortures her by beating her, biting her, Mm. and cutting her with a knife. Wow. He rapes her and then he strangles her to death. He's just getting more and more and more violent. And more and more brazen. Yeah. Yeah. She's reported missing that night. And when authorities go to their apartment, Ledgewood Terrace and Little Ferry, nothing is missing and there's no forced entry. And Marianne's body is found near the chain link fence of the Quality Inn Hotel parking lot in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. So he takes her to the Quality Inn and then he just dumps her body right outside the Quality Inn. Yeah. Marianne is fully clothed, but has ligature marks around her ankles and wrists from handcuffs. It's clear that they're handcuffs. And she has ligature marks around her neck. Her left leg is visible because her white pants of her uniform has been slashed. She's been strangled and the ligature was still around her neck. Marianne was 5'5 and weighed about 117 pounds. She had blonde hair and it just looks like she's been dumped in the parking lot. And once again, small frame. Yeah, exactly. When police are at a dead end, Marianne's grief-stricken husband offered a $10,000 reward for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of Marianne's murderer. Quote, being the husband, I feel I have to do everything I can. It's very frustrating not knowing where or who the murderer is. He has to be brought to justice. End quote. Now, about the same time, Jersey police are finding out that there are a lot of sexual assault cases being filed in the same area Hmm. near the hotel where Marianne is found. These women, who are alive, mind you, are found on the side of the road from the hotels. They've been drugged and sexually assaulted. And when they wake up, they can't remember anything. They do all have one thing in common. They're all sex workers. Not from New Jersey. But from New York City. Okay. And that's exactly where Richard works. Mm. The 3 to 11 shift. Uh Okay. So here's Richard's MO with these young girls. These sex workers in need of money in New York City, they meet Richard. He flashes this big wad of cash, tells them he doesn't want sex. He wants to take them out to dinner and to talk. So the girls find this very inviting. 
Richard frequents a place called Flanagan's. He sometimes goes there alone and picks up women, and sometimes he takes escorts. And while at dinner, Richard would talk to the girls. He would talk them into sex and tell them that he would pay them $100. Then during dinner, he would drug them Mm. and escort them out of the bar and into his car where he would drive into New Jersey to cheap motels that rented rooms by the hour. He'd carry them through the back door, then molest and torture the girls for extended periods of time. And when the deed was done, if they survived, he'd dump them somewhere or leave them in the hotel room, taking their clothes and all of their belongings. And the sex workers would have little to no memory of the night. He roofied them. Yeah. He roofied them, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But they'd be covered in these horrific wounds. They would be raped and sodomized and bitten. Mm. And those were the lucky ones. The others he'd just kill and then dump the body. Richard's a particular kind of murderer. And we've already said this. He's a serial sexual killer. He doesn't get pleasure from killing, but from torturing his victims. And he doesn't care if his victim lives or dies. Once he's finished with the torture, if the victim's dead or they die before he is finished, Richard doesn't care. He just continues to abuse the corpse until he's satisfied. Wow. Then he abandons the victim like trash. And as if this isn't enough, he's having an extramarital affair with a woman named Barbara Lucas and will do so from 1977 until 1980 for three years. Where does he find the time? Really? Wow. I don't even have time to do my laundry. (laughs) And this guy is killing and raping and has a wife and kids and a mistress on the side. I spend most of my extra time looking for my car keys. (laughs) Or your phone. Or my phone, yeah, one of those. (laughs) March 22nd, 1978, Karen Schilt is a 26-year-old pregnant waitress who's stopped to have a drink in a Manhattan bar. She meets Richard at the Third Street Tavern. And just like Marzi Carr and the mini before her, Karen was petite. And even before you email me, I realize she's drinking and she's pregnant. So don't email me about that. I'm just telling the story. Okay, but it's 1978. And unfortunately, it really was it wasn't a no, no from the CDC until 1981. I looked it up. Okay, if you can believe that. I know they're like, go ahead, drink, smoke, do whatever you want. It's a wonder we all turned out. okay. (laughs) I mean, how how did we we're like the generation that, you know, drank from the hose and never wore a helmet. And our parents (laughs) were drinking when we were were in utero. I mean, exactly. Maybe that's what made us so tough. Come on, Gen X. That's right. <laughs> Mini bikes with no helmets. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but she's having a drink after finishing her shift at Tuesdays, which was a restaurant. And Richard starts chatting her up and he tells her his name is Joseph Schaefer. And these two start talking and he asks her if she's a, quote, working girl, meaning a sex worker. Right. And she says, uh, no. <laughs> But he keeps hinting to her that he thinks she's lying. He thinks that she is a a sex worker. He buys her a drink or two. And then after about an hour, Karen leaves the bar to walk home to her apartment at 94 Third Avenue, just 14 blocks away. And as she's walking, she starts to feel dizzy. And who is following her? Mm. Richard in his car. And Richard offers to drive her home. So he's like drugging her and then he's like to the rescue. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Karen agrees to let him drive her home. And as soon as she gets in the car, she realizes 
He has no intention of taking her home. They were leaving Manhattan toward New Jersey. Then Richard offers her a pill to make her feel better. It was a barbiturate. She takes Uh, the pill and falls asleep. Yeah. Richard drives into a parking lot across from the Ledgewood Terrace Apartments where he used to live and sexually assaulted Karen. Karen was found lying with her breasts and genitals exposed by a little fairy New Jersey patrolman. Mm. She was close to death. Her pulse was weak. Her breath was shallow. She goes by ambulance to Hackensack Hospital where she had to be given oxygen and cardiac massage to get her heart going again. She was that close to death. But she will survive. And the toxicology report said that she had two different types of barbiturates in her system. She had bruising on her legs, cigarette burns on her left breast, trauma to her elbow, and bite and scratch marks all over her body. October 10th, 1978, Susan Geiger, age 19, a sex worker who is also pregnant, is approached by Richard on 8th Avenue. Susan is a 5 foot nothing, 96-pound girl. He tries to pick her up between Broadway and 7th Avenue on West 47th Street. And although Susan informed Richard that she had commitments for the remainder of the evening, he offered her $200 for an appointment with him later that night. An appointment. An appointment. Okay. So she leaves him her contact information at the Alpine Hotel. And the following night, Richard called Susan and asked her out on a date at midnight because he gets off at 11. Right. He picks Susan up in his maroon Thunderbird. Okay. Susan will later describe Richard, who called himself Jim, as friendly. He plied Susan with a number of drugged drinks, and then they headed to Flanagan's Tavern on First Avenue. He told Susan that his name was Jim and that he was married with young children and he lived in New Jersey. He also told her that he worked with computers in Manhattan. So part of his story is true, right? During their conversation, he boasted that he had recently won a substantial amount of money from gambling and produced a wad of cash. And at one point, she gets up, and when she returns, Richard has a screwdriver cocktail he had ordered for her waiting at the bar. (laughs) And he told her to keep stirring it with the straw because it tastes bad, of course. He's put these drugs in the drink. And she does it. Oh, jeez. And soon after, she takes a few sips of the drink. She begins feeling dizzy and detached. And just like the other girl before her, like Schilt, her memory of what happened that night was incomplete. It's gone. Susan would wake up covered in her own blood in room 28 of the airport motel in South Hackensack, New Jersey. Wow, that's different. Mm. Susan had been tortured by Richard, who injured her face, breast, vagina, and rectum. In addition, he had beaten Susan multiple times with a garden hose and torn Susan's gold earrings out of her ears. Jeez. She was taken to the hospital by a South Hackensack police officer. Additionally, Captain Agar, who was first on the scene, looked into room 28 of the airport motel and gave the New Jersey State Police Laboratory a number Pieces of evidence. Uh, yeah. Okay. And here, investigators found seminal fluid that a male with type O blood had left behind on a towel. Okay. And of course, when they get her to the hospital, they do toxicology. She's got barbiturates in her system. Right. April 1979, Richard's wife, Janet, files for divorce. 
go figure. It's about time. Bless her heart. <laughs> I don't know if she's left him physically or not. I don't know if they were living apart at this time or not. Right. But this is where it gets real, as if it hasn't been real before. Yeah. Late on December 2nd, 1979, New York City firefighters are called to a blaze in a Times Square motel, the Travel Lodge Motor Inn. Room 417. Okay. Hotel workers call the fire department after seeing smoke coming from inside the room. And on the outside of the door, a do not disturb sign was hanging on the doorknob. The name on the room was Carl Wilson. Okay. And Carl had been using this room under this name since November 29th. Mm. When firefighters arrive, there are two bodies in the room, one on each bed. The first fireman leans in to start mouth to mouth and realizes that the woman on the bed has no head. Oh, She's been decapitated. Geez. Both bodies had been decapitated. Wow. Also, their hands had been cut off. Mm. Richard raped, tortured, and killed both women, then used a hacksaw to cut off their hands and heads wow. before lighting them both on fire. Oh, my gosh. He left the scene with the victim's heads and hands in a bag. Wow. And these particular murders would dub him the Times Square Ripper hmm. or the Torso Killer. Gotcha. Autopsies would reveal that they were both tortured and sexually assaulted for days. Authorities are able to identify one of the bodies, 22-year-old Dita Guzzari, who was a sex worker who lived in Trenton, New Jersey. She'd come to the United States a few years before from Kuwait, mm. and Dita had a four-month-old daughter. And Richard is a regular customer of Dita's. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> There's lots of it this week. <laughs> That's the third foreshadowing we've I had. know. I've just foreshadowed myself <laughs> out the door. The other woman, to this day, remains a Jane Doe. Oh, really? After they put out the flames, the crime scene is investigated, and they discover that the room had been cleaned of fingerprints. Hmm. Dita and Jane Doe's clothes are found in the bathtub, folded up, like their clothes are neatly folded up, and their shoes are sitting right on top of the clothes. Mm. It's all neatly stacked right on top. Yeah, it's just creepy, weird. Yeah. Demented. After Richard leaves the blazing hotel room, he gets in his car and he drives away. And get this, he is pulled over by police who ask him what he's doing out at 3.30 in the morning. Oh, wow. In his car, he has a bag with <laughs> two heads and two sets of hands. Wow. He tells the police officer that he was staying at a nearby hotel and was driving to get something to eat. The officers never asked to see what was inside this bag. Wow. Yeah. That close. So close. Yeah. So the police officer says, okay, go get something to eat, sends him on his way. And after that, Richard disposes of the heads and the hands. Mm. At autopsy, the medical examiner can see that the bodies had been killed at different times. Jane Doe is thought to be in her teens, and once Dita is identified, they discover that she is a high-class sex worker, and she normally did business in expensive hotels and not the seedy ones mm. that are in Times Square. Sure. Now, today, the Times Square hotels are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard's co-workers later say the murders rocked the city at that time. Yeah. And that's saying a lot because the city was pretty rough back then. <laughs> Big time. 
And when Richard talked about the ripper of Times Square murders to his buddies at the water cooler, he said, quote, it could be me. Hmm. It could be you, end quote. They thought he was kidding because they just think Richard's weird. He's weird AF. Well, and you wouldn't think anyone that you know or work with would be that twisted and demented. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're standing next to this guy who's really good at his job, apparently, and has been there for 12 years or whatever. It has a wife and kids, and everybody thinks he's a doting father. And instead, he's killing these women and setting them on fire. May 5th, 1980, the Quality Inn Motel in Hasbrook Heights. This is the same Quality Inn where Richard has dumped Marianne Carr's body in the parking lot. He's starting to play games. Wow. A maid for the hotel comes to clean room 132, a room that Shelley Douglas had checked into. The name is obviously an alias. I also read the alias was Shelley Dudley, so it's one of those two names. Okay. Shelley checks in with Richard Cottingham. Mm. When the hotel maid, Mary Ann Sancanelli, goes into the room, she smells something foul. Oh. She moves the mattress away and finds the body of... Valerie Street, wow. a strawberry blonde, five foot four petite. Wow. She's a sex worker from New York City. Jeez. She's hideously disfigured. Her hands are so tightly handcuffed behind her back, the cuffs have cut into her flesh. Mm. Valerie is covered in bite marks and was beaten across the shins. Uh. She died of asphyxiation. Traces of adhesive tape were found on her mouth. Richard had taken it off just before stuffing her in the bed. But what he didn't take off were her handcuffs, mm. and he left behind a single fingerprint Uh-oh. on the inner ratchet of the cuffs. There's your first mistake, Richard. Yeah. They discover Valerie's identity by her fingerprints because she'd been convicted of prostitution in Florida. And in fact, Valerie arrived in New York City from Florida just six days uh-huh. before she's murdered. Wow. Not a good trip. Eight days later, May 12, 1980, Richard picks up Pamela Weisenfeld in New York City. He drugs her and drives her to New Jersey, where he beats, rapes, and savagely bites Pamela in the chest, dumping her body in a parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. Pamela will survive. Ten days after murdering Valerie Street, May 15, 1980, the New York Fire Department is called to the Hotel Seville at 29th and 5th Avenue. A fire has been set in one of the rooms— and when they put out the flames, Jean Reiner's body is found. Jeez. She's been butchered, stabbed, strangled, and mutilated. Both of her breasts have been cut off and placed on the headboard of the bed. Oh, my God. This guy's a monster. And her torso has been set on fire. Ugh. Now, remember how he told his coworkers at the office how he liked big breasts? Mm-hmm. And he cut those off. Mm. New York Police Department knows this is the same guy who just cut off the heads and hands in the Times Square Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, do you know how Times Square got its name? I do not. The New York Times took up residence in the Times Square building at 1 Times Square and 42nd Street. It's the building that drops the ball every year in New Year's Eve in the United States. Never even thought about it. The New York Times is no longer there. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But that's how it got its name. Did not know that. Richard's getting sloppy, and on May 22nd, 1980, Richard's luck is about to run out. Mm. Back at the Quality Inn in Hasbrook, New Jersey, his favorite Quality Inn, Richard's picked up sex worker Leslie Ann O'Dell. She's 5'4", blonde hair. 
She arrived in New York City from Washington State just four days before she meets Richard. She's 18. Richard tells her his name is Tommy. He takes her to a bar and they have a drink or two for about an hour. Then he tells her he wants to take her to New Jersey where they can get a room and they can have sex. Okay. On the way to Jersey, he stops at the New Star Diner in South Hackensack. This diner is just a half a mile from the old Ledgewood Terrace apartments where he used to live. Again, always around the area that he knows. After dinner, Richard and Leslie go to the Quality Inn and check into room 117. She's been drugged, but maybe not enough because he leaves to go move the car. And when he comes back, he's got a knife. He tells her to undress and lay face down on the bed. Then he gets on top of her and uses the knife to threaten her. He tells her that he would slit her throat if she makes a sound. Then he quickly handcuffs her wrists behind her back, just like he'd done to all the other girls. He tells her, I'm sexually aroused by torturing and beating women, and I've done this to other women before you. He ranted on about how she was a whore and needed to be punished. He rapes her. Then he lacerates her sternum. He bites her. He stabs her and cuts her breast. Then Richard forces her to perform oral sex on him. And through the entire ordeal, Richard is telling her that he is going to kill her. I'm going to kill you. Then he gets out another pair of handcuffs and shackles her ankles before removing the handcuffs around her wrist. And then he orders her to perform a variety of nauseating acts, including licking his entire body, kissing and licking his feet, and sodomy. He's a monster. That's putting it mildly. That's insulting to monsters. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, it is. But it's at this point, when she just can't take it anymore, that she screams. Even though he told her he was going to kill her if she made a sound. He's also said, I'm just going to kill you, period. What she got to lose. Yeah. And one of the hotel staff hears her cry out. They call the front desk and report a disturbance. Mm. Now, they've had a couple of bodies dumped in their parking lot and a body found under a mattress. They're not taking any chances here. (laughs) Yeah, fool me once. They send a security guard to the door to check on them. It takes about 15 minutes before anybody comes Mm. to the door. And during this time, the police are called. Again, not taking any chances. Leslie Ann sticks only her head out like she just peeks her head out and says, quote, everything is fine. But her eyes were telling a different story. When they ask her if she's okay, she replies yes, but she's shifting her eyes back and forth. So they will know that Ah, she's saying, I'm not okay. No. Smart, smart, smart. As the police arrive on the scene, a man is seen running out of the building in a suspicious manner, and he's carrying a bag. (laughs) It's Richard Cottingham. And in his bag are handcuffs, drugs, Valium, barbiturates, duct tape, a leather gag, two leather slave collars. It's just a serial killer's overnight bag. (laughs) It sounds like it. Jesus. Wow. When they get to him, Richard has no explanation for why he has all this stuff, and he's taken into custody on May 22nd, 1980. June 1980, Richard's wife, Janet, withdraws the divorce papers. What? Yes. Why? And his wife then describes him as a devoted husband and a good dad. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. 
I mean, he might have been a good dad. I don't know about that. Yeah. I really don't know about the devoted husband part. Yeah. You've been cheating on her. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, I cheated on her and I killed several women. But other than that, yeah, I was a great husband. Yeah. But Richard maintains his innocence. Deny, yeah. deny, deny. Yeah. But she takes the kids and moves to Poughkeepsie, New York. She will divorce him in 1981. Okay. Now, Richard is smug, even with the police officers, even though he's been identified in a police lineup by two of the women who lived, Susan Geiger and Karen Schilt. Hmm. Those are the two pregnant women. Right. And when he won't answer the police officer's questions, he finally says, quote, the only thing I have to say is that I have a problem with women, end quote. Okay, yeah. I, I have a problem with women. I think that's an understatement. That's the biggest understatement ever. <laughs> wow. They search Richard's middle-class home and in his basement behind a locked door mm. that his wife and kids had no access to are souvenirs oh. of all the women he killed. No. It was his trophy room. No. So all these women, all these cases with no leads and no suspects, it was all right here in Richard's basement. Jeez. Still, when he goes to trial, he denies everything, saying he only knew the one sex worker, Leslie Ann O'Dell, the girl that he got caught with in the hotel. <laughs> he also claimed that everything that he and Leslie Ann did was consensual. Yeah, sure. Yeah, consensual. Yeah. Whatever, Richard. He did all kinds of crazy stuff during the trials. He tried to commit suicide twice, once by drinking anti-anxiety medication and the other by slashing his left forearm open in front of a jury. Oh, wow. He escaped out of the courtroom for a hot second before being chased down and tackled to the ground and had to go back and finish the trial. <laughs> wow. This is a guy who said, it's not me, it's not me, it's not yeah. me. And he's trying to kill himself and then running away from yeah. the trial. Yeah. He was found guilty for the murder of Marianne Carr on October 12, 1982. He would be found guilty of the murder of Jane Doe and Dita Guzzari, as well as Jean Renier, in July of 1984. Oh, okay. In 2010, Richard admits to the murder of Nancy Vogel. In 2014, he admits to the murders of Irene Blaze and Denise Falaska. Wow. Then in 2017, he admitted to murdering Jackie Harp. In 2021, he admits to and is convicted of the murders of Lori Kelly and Mary Ann Pryor. Wow. Those are the two girls who were going to look for bathing yeah. suits. And finally, in December of 2022, he admitted to murdering Lorraine McGraw, Laverne Moy, Sheila Herman, Marita Neves, and it's all because of Diane Martin Kuzik, the dance teacher. Really? Well, why, why Diane? Well... In 2021, the Nassau County DA's office arranged for the retesting of a semen sample that was left on the clothing of Diane. Gotcha. Richard raped and strangled her in the back of her car in 1968. Right. And this sample had been preserved on her clothing for over 40 years. Wow. Diane's daughter, Darlene, do you remember her? Yeah. She was like four. Sure. In the early 2000s, she went to the Nassau County Police to see if the technology we have today could be used to solve her mother's murder. Mm. And 23 years ago, the DNA profile that was generated from the semen on her mother's clothes, mm. it wasn't suitable to be uploaded into the National DNA Index to even look for a match. Sure. But 22 years later, yeah. technology had advanced to the point where they could generate a DNA profile from the crime scene. Right. 
And in 2005, authorities added Richard Cottingham's DNA profile into the databank. He was in jail, mm-hmm. but they just went ahead and took his DNA. Sure. When they uploaded Diane's profile, it was a perfect match mm. to Richard Cottingham. Wow. Yeah. So how did all the information on all the other victims of Richard come out? For a man who wouldn't speak about the murders, right? Right. An author, Peter Vronsky, he's got tons of books on serial killers out there, and I'll put a link to his Amazon page in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Peter had an ongoing relationship with Richard for years, Mm. and Richard confessed all the new crimes to him. Really? Yes. Richard Cottingham has boasted to killing 85 to 100 people. And according to an article I read where Vronsky was interviewed, there was a murder in Somerset County, New Jersey, a week after Richard got his driver's license. Wow. And this may have been his very first victim. She was found drowned. Mm. Vronsky also thinks that Richard's claim to have 100 victims is entirely possible because the math works out to one every six weeks which Vronsky says in those days without profiling tactics, that's entirely possible that he did that. Every six weeks, he killed somebody. Amazing. Second side note, Jennifer Wise, whose mother was murdered by Richard Cottingham, has befriended him. What? Yes. Are you serious? Yes. Jennifer Wise's mom, Dita Guzzari, whose body was found in the Times Square Hotel, decapitated and set on fire. By the way, the skull has never been found. She visits Richard in prison a few times a month. She began the relationship by writing to him and asking where her mother's head was. Because she knew her body had been buried in a mass grave on New York's Hart Island. In 2017, he tells her and the authorities to go out with ground-penetrating radar and look at a specific location. But there's nothing there. It's a dead end. Her friendship with Richard helped him to confess to the murders that were unsolved for so many years. Her and Peter Vronsky and a former chief of police in Bergen County, his name is Robert Anzalotti. Okay. Now, he admits to the other murders in 2021 and 2022. Those admissions are Diane Cusick, Mary Beth Hines, Laverne Moy, Sheila Hyman, Maria Neves, Marianne Pryor, and Lorraine Kelly. He faced several of these families when they sentenced him again for these murders. The judge made him look at these families when they wheeled his sorry ass into the courtroom. (laughs) And when he left, he said he was never doing that again. (laughs) Like, well, did he have a choice? He didn't have a choice. Well, he did. He He could have not said, he could have not given up those names when they started asking him, did you do this? Did you do this? Mm. Because part of the reason we know that he like picked the girls up who were hitchhiking and what he did is because he told. Right. He told on himself. So now that he's had to face these families because they all had victim impact statements that they wanted to say to him, And he didn't want to look at him, and they wheeled him around and made him look at them. So now, who knows if we will ever know the true extent of his murdering ways, because they think he's murdered up to 100 women. But he did finally confess to those. Wow. Richard has been sitting in prison for 43 years. He's currently housed at the Southwoods Prison in New Jersey. His health is failing. (laughs) Too bad. And now he's in the prison infirmary, which is like a retirement home for criminals. Yeah. 
They're still trying to get information out of Richard, but he is serving a 200-year sentence. Now, they haven't prosecuted him for some of the new victims other than Diane Martin Kuzik, because why? Time and resources are better put to prosecuting somebody else. He's there for good. He's not getting out. But it was some closure for these families. I'll leave you with this quote of Richard's from when he's asked by Rolling Stone, why did you kill these women? Quote, for a long time now, I have been trying to understand the darkness that enveloped my soul during my youth. Remorse back then wasn't part of my thought process. When the sun went down and the moon came up, the animal form that is in all of us came out and controlled my actions, Mm. end quote. Whatever. And I I say that whatever, Richard. Uh, You knew exactly what you were doing. You bragged about it to your coworkers. Yeah. Yeah, You danced on that line between confession and insanity. They all thought you were nucking futz. And you're sitting there going, it could be that the torso killer could be you. It could be me. And then you won't look at the victim's families. So he says he has remorse. Yeah. But yeah, whatever. whatever. That it was not part of his thought (laughs) process back then. But I don't think he's remorseful now. I think he's sad he got caught and he had to spend his life in prison. Like most serial killers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the story of Richard Cottingham. And if we get any more victims, I promise we'll come back and talk Hmm. about them. But that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, have you read any good books lately or have you listened to any good books? All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Well, Richard was one busy man, wasn't he? Good Richard's grief. a dick. What a monster. <laughs> There's a reason his name oh, is Richard. And he ju- yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah, bolder, braver. Just yeah. escalated. So. And the fact that, you know, we did this case already and there were so many victims and then we added yeah. seven more. Yeah. And seven more victims and to the list. And now he's shut down and there could be more, but he's not going to talk about them. Yeah, and he's in, in failing health. Yeah. So I do know that Dita's daughter still wants to know where her mother's head is. Absolutely. And so I think she keeps talking to him and maybe someday he will give up that information. I also read that, you know, he wouldn't just sit and confess. You would have to talk to him about stuff. Like, I think one of the things that Peter Vronsky said was, you know, we had him talking about where in New York City, where in Manhattan you could get the best pastrami sandwich. And then out of the blue, in that middle of that sentence, he would say, and yeah, I picked these two girls up on the way to the Paramus Mall. His ego would get the best of him. Uh, maybe, right. but I don't think he's. I don't think he's got a full set of crayons no. in the head. <laughs> he's missing a few colors. <laughs> I think that's uh, pretty obvious. Yeah. Oh, well. 
Well, let's get away from Richard. Yes, I need I need to bless somebody's yeah. heart today. Let's do a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right, I've got four of them today. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so we'll start off with the first one. This I'm going to call this the bumbling bumper bandits. Okay. <laughs> Three would-be British thieves tried way too hard to wrap chains around an ATM machine that held $31,000. That would be about 20,000 pounds. And with the help of a car, they tried to carry the whole thing away. Unfortunately for them, the chains didn't hold and were left behind with the car's rear bumper and license plate. <laughs> leaving the thieves to drive off empty-handed and easily traced by the officers who arrested them shortly. Oh, my gosh. That's good. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, don't try to steal an ATM. No. It's not going to go well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, number two, denture gate. Oh, no. We're going to talk about false teeth. <laughs> one day, Justin Stansfield, a British heroin addict and thief, broke into a garage to steal valuable items so he could sell it and buy his next fix. Yeah, that's what they usually do. While in the garage, he found a freezer full of cold beers and popsicles. Oh. He decided he would have some fun instead. He took out his fake teeth to enjoy a couple of popsicles after he downed a few beers. Oh, but oh, before he left, oh. he forgot to put his teeth back in, and the police were able to trace them back to the rightful owner. This dumb act, I like that, cost him 16 months behind bars. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right, number three, don't forget your homework. Wait a second. Are you supposed to take your false teeth out before you eat a popsicle? What's that? I don't know. Okay. All right. Number three, don't forget your homework. At a bus stop in St. Paul, Minnesota, Justin John Bowden, a hot-tempered man, was involved in an argument with a woman whom he cowardly punched in the face. He also attacked another person who was standing there, which caused him to drop his folder on the ground. He didn't retrieve the folder before he fled. The cops who arrived at the scene a few minutes later easily tracked Bowden thanks to what was inside the folder, his anger management homework. <laughs> you can't make that up. Can't make that one up. Uh, number four, the last one, thinking with the wrong head. Oh, gosh. Okay. Scottish shoplifter Aaron Morrison might be one of the stupidest thieves in history. <laughs> After Morrison stole a bottle of vodka from the liquor store, he had the nerve to flirt with the shop clerk and give her his name and number. Well, let's just say it didn't take Sherlock Holmes to trace his whereabouts after that. He was found, apprehended, and served time. Aww. So there's your four. Well, bless he your heart. He just wanted to have a date with, with a drink. <laughs> Here's my name and number. Yeah, you should try Tinder or something oh, instead. My yeah, there you go. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, all you have to do is go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu there. You can also suggest a case. Yep. That's all we have this week. We're so glad you joined yes. us. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs>